Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon here with the one, the only, John Kaplan. Cap, what are we doing today? What's going on? How you doing, buddy? You and I are glued to the uh, to the internet uh, with the hurricane updates, and uh, <clears throat> so, but I'm all I'm locked in because we're we're going to talk to a great guest today. So I'm locked in. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Hey, Cap, our guest today is someone you know very well. Chris worked at PTC, where he quickly grew from account executive to VP. He led teams in North America and had international stints in Europe, Singapore, and was the VP of Asia PAC while residing in Japan. After PTC, he found his passion in startups, first working at Mira Image under another great friend, God rest his soul, Jim Vetta. Then Chris joined Indeca as the CRO where he grew the company from zero to 100 million prior to the acquisition by Oracle. After Indeca, Chris was CRO at Kiva until the acquisition by Amazon. Then he spent three years as CRO at Vericode, which was acquired by CA. After Vericode, Chris was CRO at VM Turbo, which was recently acquired by IBM. And finally, he was CRO at Dyn, which was acquired by Oracle. I think he's gonna have to give uh, Oracle, a big thanks. After being <laughs> successful at four different raw startups, Chris has become an advisor to many companies, including Incorda, Drift, Salsify, and Logs.io. But today we find Chris as an operating partner at the VC firm Jungle Ventures in Singapore, where he invests and helps advise early stage companies like Saltmine and Crayon Data. Cap, please help me welcome my good friend and past business colleague, the talented Chris Reisig. Hey, Chris, it's great to see you, my friend. It's uh, I was just thinking about getting prepared for this. The it, time really flies. Uh, Johnny, I don't know if you remember, uh, it, Chris and I, at the same time, we got, um, we were in, Chris, you had just gotten promoted to a DM. Do you remember the Ann Gary was our uh, uh, facilitator or our teacher for DM training at yeah. in Boston back in the day. It's the first time I met you. Yeah. And that's just, that seems like yesterday, dude. It's unbelievable. It's great to see you, bud. Yeah, likewise. I'm glad to be here. Well, Chris, hey, let's, let's hop right into the deep water. So you've done four raw startups and you had to find, you know, product market fit. You had to sell the first customer, hire the first sales rep, build an ICP, create the initial sales process and more. Walk the listeners through some of the learnings from the, you know, doing four raw startups. Yeah, I think, you know, you said it, 
you know, when you're, when you're in at that stage, you sort of have to be a jack of all trades. You're, you're all about finding that ICP. Who is our ideal customer? What's our repeatability model? And in order to do that, you have to do a couple things, right? You have to be out in front of customers. You have to be on those first 20 deals. You have to be in the meetings. You have to be understanding the objections. You have to be, you know, finding the pockets of value that your technology can create. Um, and, and then you need to bring that back and communicate very clearly to the technology team that's building the product, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're finding, what the competitive landscape looks like, how are customers reacting to the messaging, how are customers reacting to the product? You know, are they, are they comparing us to something else on occasion and, and, you know, how do we handle that? So it's a lot of, um, in the earliest days, it's a lot of, um, kind of wearing two hats. You're almost a product manager and a sales professional at the same time. Right, um, right. Until you get to a point and there's like a whole bunch of levels to the maturation of a company. You know, that's, I'd say, you know, from, from customer one to customer 20, that's the mode you're in, is learning yeah. every day, being in sales meetings, being in, in campaigns, trying to understand where your product market fit resides. Then once you get past that, there's a whole other level of stuff that has to come into that sort of first part of scaling, you know, going from being an infant to being a toddler, right. From a, from a company perspective. Yeah. But first, you know, you re like you said, you're really almost a product manager. And that's what I think a lot of people don't understand when they go in really early, you know, they, you're a product manager and you're trying to figure out your ICP, but at the same time, every time you take feedback back to product, they start, they go to engineering and they start developing the product more and your ICP kind of is in flux, right? That yeah. starts to change also, right? Talk a little yeah, bit and, about and, that. And, you know, there are, there are choices you have to make because as a small company, um, you know, you can't, you can't create everything the market needs with one small team of 20 or 30 developers and a, and, you know, and a trick duck, as I used to say, right. You really yeah. have to focus. And so it's important as you put that product management hat on to try to communicate back to that team, what are the most important things? How do we, how do we, you know, measure what will have the biggest impact in our ability to generate revenue off of this product we're building and what things do we maybe put to, to the side for a while um, while we build the stuff that we think can generate immediate revenue and differentiate us in the marketplace? And it's interesting because the other thing you're dealing with at that time is like investors have made a bet, you know, and typically they, you've raised a seed or a series A. And, you know, those investors that invest at that level are looking for different data points than later stage investors. And so you have to make sure you're also communicating with those investors what you're finding and what you're seeing. And, and sometimes those investors who do that a lot can be super helpful in giving you feedback on what do these signals mean that I'm getting from the marketplace. So there's a whole bunch of things. You're, you're part product manager, part salesperson, part investor relations. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of stuff going on at that stage. And how much are you looking for the pains as you talk to different customers and different use cases? How much are you looking for the pains that they have to try to steer product, you know, because you're a product manager, steer it around those types of pains because that can bring you a high differentiation maybe later on, you know, in the company's history. I mean, I think that's the critical thing, 
to, to your point, you and I, all, the three of us have all kind of grown up in the same value selling uh, environment. If you cannot find pain that's acute in your customer, you have to keep looking because unless you have something that's painful enough for a customer to invest money and time in, it's, it's interesting, but not relevant. Like they're not going to do anything. And so you're always looking for pain and the, the more pain, the better, right? So the, the deeper the pain, the more cost involved in not doing something in that particular area of the technology landscape, the better off you are. And so I think, you know, when you're in that early selling mode, it's always hunting for pain. Yeah. And I think that's also how you, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, the, this idea of like prioritizing technology components at the early days. That's how you prioritize is how much pain is the customer in because of this piece of functionality that we might build. If it's a lot, we're going to go invest the cycles to build it. If it's not that much, we got to keep looking to find the area that where there's, there's a lot of pain because pain, people spend money to solve that. Yeah, exactly. Now talk to us about when you feel like, okay, now it's time to, we're kind of starting to product market fit is starting to gel. Maybe one or two customers give you a little bit of money for it, but you know, you're not extracting lots of money yet. Tell us when you start to think, okay, it's time to hire one or two sales reps. I think when you start to see, you know, all of my career, I've been good at what I call pattern recognition, right? So when you start to see a recurring pattern of at the same point in our sales pitch, the lights go on, right? Like I'm talking about this piece of functionality, all of a sudden, you know, the customer lights up because they have pain. When you start to recognize that in two, three, four, five sales campaigns, kind of at the same point with the same thing, you start to say, okay, now I have some sense of repeatability. And that's really important, John, because as you know, you know, it's one thing if you and the founder can go out and do 10 deals, like as a, as a team and just like superhuman powers of a founder with vision and a good salesperson, that's great. But unless you can teach other people beyond the founder and the first sales leader to close a deal, to take a deal from you know, first presentation to a PO, you don't have a scalable business. And right. so that's it's like, not the, it's not repeatable. It's yeah. not, it's not. And so that's really the first, you know, as an investor now looking at it from the other side, like what, that's the first sign, in my opinion, that you have something really repeatable. If, if, if a founder can turn to me and say, hey, the last five deals we did, I only came in to shake hands at the end. Okay, now you're, you got my attention. There's something there. Yeah. But some can understand that, deal, but, but some get frustrated. Some founders get frustrated. They, they say, well, I can go out there and sell the deals. Why can't my sales guys go out there and sell the deals? It's funny how often I hear that, John. Yes. You're absolutely right. Yes. You're absolutely so Chris, right. Chris, what? But that's a huge point because sometimes I think that technical founders, I've found, it's kind of like some type of badge of honor or courage. And I don't want to say it like, I don't want to say it like, um, you know, the kid grew up one way and then, you know, they're, they, they realize that they can do things that other people can't do. And so they're, they're, they hang on to that longer. It's not a badge of courage. Like how, you're an advising Chris and like, what feedback do you give to the, the founders that 
really seemed to kind of want to hang out in that um, in that sales process, and and they hang out there too long, and so the it, it, therefore it's a self fulfilling prophecy. It's like yeah. nothing can survive without me, and then nothing can survive without them. So how do you how do you coach people around that? Well, that's you know that is a first of all common occurrence. Um, yeah. And it's one that I spent a lot of time trying to coach early stage CEOs to, to sort of get out of that day-to-day selling. And there's another angle to it too. Either they, they want to be in the weeds on the sale too much, yeah. or they want to try to do everything and solve every problem with their technology because their vision is so big. And either one of those problems is huge. And so the first one, you know, I spend a lot of time with, you know, first or second time founders. And by the way, there's a huge difference between a first and second time founder, just to be clear, like first time founder, that's really hard to get them out of that mode because they've built that company off their own back, right? It's their vision. And they, they treat, you know, the good ones treat every customer interaction like it's gold, right? They want to make sure that that customer is heard and that they're, they're understanding the technology that they've worked so passionately and hard to create. So you have to sort of walk them through that. Like there are stages of building a startup and, you know, there's a stage where it's appropriate, absolutely appropriate for the founder to be in every single sales discussion and to have input in every single sales discussion. But if that stage goes on more than the first six to 12 months, something's not right. Right. Either, either the technology is not solving a problem that's painful enough for people to, to kind of standardize on it. Or that founder is not willing to give up control. And you do see that, you know, in these founders it takes a lot to be a founder. It's not a, it, it's not for the faint of heart. And so I give founders a tremendous amount of credit to go off and jump off that cliff of, I have no job. I have no paycheck. I'm going to go build a business because I believe in it. That's one of the bravest things anyone can do in business. And so it's easy to sit here, three of us who have sort of um, done a lot, seen a lot to say, oh, it, you know, the founders need to get out of the way. Well, it's not that simple, right? You, you need to help them understand that them stepping away and making sure the right pieces are in place for them to step away without the customer experience being degraded is an important part of growing a business. And until they're able to do that, the company's not going to grow beyond them. The other problem I mentioned, and cut me off if I'm going on too long, but the other problem I mentioned is actually I see a lot, even in, in second-time founders, or multiple founders, they they have a huge vision, right? They they think their product can can you know, as the old Saturday Night Live skit. It's a uh, it's a floor it's a floor it's a floor wax and a dessert topping. I don't know if you remember that one, right? <laughs> yeah. So so they have they have a vision. It's a big vision. It's a bold vision. And by the way, that's great. You want every founder to have a big and bold vision. But guess what? In you know sub one million dollar revenue land, you can't sell that whole vision. You have to find a, a, a piece of that vision. This is like the, the age-old anecdote that you eat an elephant one bite at a time. You might have a vision for a startup that's going to dominate the world of data integration or the world of robotics or whatever it is that the technology sector you're in. That's great. But in order to get a sales force to a level of repeatability, you have to break that down into bite-sized chunks of value that can be packaged and communicated and sold to specific painful business problems and then repeated a bunch of times to prove that you have something for that specific problem. And then you can add to it and expand and go on and on and on. And so 
I encourage founders, don't lose sight of your big vision. Like that's an important, that's the heartbeat of this business. But recognize you got to break that big vision down into bite-sized chunks that can be digested by your go-to-market team and by the market, by, by customers, especially if you're building something new in a new category. You, it's important to keep the framework simple enough that it can be absorbed. Absorbed. Yeah. And someday we may, to your point, we may sell to every company on the earth, but in the early stages, where are we going to place our salespeople? Where are they going to be the most productive? That's really a key point. So to your point, I've seen a lot of founders that basically get a whole bunch of money and spread sales guys all across every city on the continent and then realize after a while, wow, it's really hard to sell into some of these bigger accounts or accounts that aren't in their ICP. And then they try to back up and now they burnt an awful lot of money doing it. Yeah. And having lived and worked in international markets and, and you and I were part of an experience at the early days of PTC where our first foray into Asia was not really well, well crafted, let's say. And yes. we had to retreat and that was really hard. And then we had to restructure the business there. And you and I were part of that. And it's hard, right? You only get one first shot at an international market or a vertical market. And you better make sure it's good, right? So don't do it until you're ready. Particularly if you have another market that's coming. Like markets can be huge, right? So if you're in the US and it's going really well and you're selling to financial services in the US, you know, yeah, you could go to financial services in Europe or you could go to another vertical sector. But if you're a 25 salesperson company and you're only scratching the surface of 5% market share in financial service in the US, why would you do anything else other than keep repeating that and getting it to go and get stronger, get more revenue and get more case studies, get more customers loving your product? Then you can go and turn your sights on something else when you have more money in the bank. Chris, when you have um, these scenarios of startups progressing into, um, you know, more go-to-market maturity, where do you see the perfect marriage between the founder and sales leadership where a founder feels comfortable that that vision can be transferred and executed into kind of an operating rhythm, like what advice do you give? We talked about what you know advice you're giving the um, the technical founders. What advice do you give the potential sales leadership that comes into a company like that? Like I see people, they're just not honest with themselves. Some people say, yeah, yeah I want to do a startup. And then they go in and they're like, <laughs> you know, Johnny and I always, we laugh about it. And we've done some podcasts talking about it. Is they're like, all right, well, you know, where's my, la my laptop wasn't available on the first day or whatever. Like nobody's laptop. Yeah, you got to go to, you got to go down to the store and get your own laptop. Yeah. Where's but, the expense reports? Yeah. Right. Go make but one, download you, one. Yeah. How do you advise like eyes wide open, how would you advise a potential sales leader that's getting recruited into uh, one of these one of these opportunities that looks like it's going to begin to get a, a need for kind of an operating rhythm and go to market maturity? I know that's a lot of words. Sorry about that, but does it make sense? 
Yeah, it does make sense, John. So, so I, I actually think if you think about it from, let's put ourselves in the shoes of a sales leadership candidate who's thinking yeah, about yeah. their next gig, right? And yeah. a lot of what I do is advise people in my own personal network, like the two of you, I really enjoy giving back to people in our industry. I, I think our craft is an important one. And, and to the degree we can help young people who are considering their next move, yeah, think through it. So am I, uh, do I really want to do a startup? Like, and how early do I want to go to your yeah, point? Yeah. Like, do I want to go to a seed, even pre-revenue or early revenue where they've got a couple of clients and they need someone to come in and provide some structure? Maybe. And the trade-off you have to think about there is, you know, if it's successful, your equity is going to be worth an enormous amount of money because you're taking a much bigger risk by going in that early. But to John, John McMahon's point, yeah, there's no expense report format. There's, there's not a lot of structure. You're doing everything. And if, if you do indeed make the mental decision that that's what you enjoy and you want to get in at that stage, like, like first revenue or pre-revenue, I think the most important advice I would give to a sales leader at that point is attach yourself at the hip to the founder and get out in front of customers with that founder and, and absorb as much of the vision and the technology positioning and the ideation that the founder has gone through to get to that point as you possibly can. And the more you can absorb and replay back in front of customers where that founder sees you doing it, the more confidence the founder is going to have that, okay, my business is now in hands that I trust. And this person now is capable of teaching others to do what I've taught him or her to do because they've spent the time, they've invested the cycles in being in the trenches with me in front of customers in hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, fighting for revenue. Right. And so that's what you got to do. And that's hard. That's hard work. Now, the payoff can be enormous. You know, imagine if you were um, salesperson number one at a company like Toast, for example, one of the Boston icons, you know, yeah, that yeah. that that the value of your equity there is pretty enormous right now. Or, you know, the early salespeople at PTC made a ton of money. Right. The, the yeah. first sales guy at Indeca made a lot of money. And, and, you know, so but those are high risk. And so. The market's mature enough now that sales leaders can make a very discreet decision. Do I want to go at C? Do I want to go in at A? Do I want to go in at series B? And there's different skill sets required and different capabilities required at each of those levels. And so I think sales professionals, leaders need to be really self-aware of where are those skills and you know, what do I like to do? And how do I, you know, find a gig that has those components that I'm good at and that I really enjoy. So good. Yeah. I, I think the best advice I've heard on this topic is, again, I think people, they get it wrong and they think it's a badge of honor. Like I can do something. And so they talk about what they can do. Where really what they can do is really not the question. It's what will give them energy right. to do it. So what will motivate them to do the job? But I find so many people, especially in technology, they, it's just a weird thing. It's like kind of a, I don't know what it is, but it's a, I don't know if it's a, it's some type of badge that says, if people don't think I can do this, then I'm going to go prove to people that I can do it. And there's some value in that, but long-term, the wheels tend to get a little wobbly after yeah, a while because you just you run out of gas. Yeah. And if you're not passionate about it, you know, you need that passion when you're having a rough day, like we all do. Yeah. That's what you fall back on. You know, I took yeah. a lot of hits early in my career because if you look at my, at the companies I worked for, 
I didn't stick to one vertical market. So I was in yeah. security, I was in robotics, I was in enterprise search, I was in internet infrastructure. Yeah. I, I did a bunch of different verticals. And so there are a lot of sales leaders that stay in security or they stay in data center tech. And there's some value in doing that because you build a customer network, you build a set of sellers that you know. For me, I always wanted to find a team that I wanted to work with that was doing something super exciting and they were smart and they were passionate about what they were building. And I wanted it to be early enough that I could have that experience of building out the ICP, finding the initial customers, really starting to think about how to scale the business. That was what got me excited. And it probably took me 10 years of my selling leadership career to recognize that about myself. And then I just kept doing it again and again. And, you know, people like me and John, you know, had opportunities to do other things, be a COO or be a CEO. I always felt like I didn't want to do that. I had, I didn't have that burning desire to go do a different job. I liked what I was doing. And I felt like if I could find a way to do it again in the same context, not necessarily the same market, right. But the same context, meaning yeah. super smart founders, very big market opportunity, relatively immature company that I could put my own fingerprints on. That's all I wanted to do. And I did it five times and had a lot of fun. And it yeah. gives you in your case specifically, you have such, just such a well-rounded background in those different industries that it makes you a better advisor and, and board member of what you do today. So it's just, uh, I think that's really, really good advice. Doesn't, it might not fit for everybody, but the more experiences you can get, the more valuable those experiences are going to be later on in life. No doubt yeah. about it. And it, it is definitely not one size fits all. So what I just right. said worked for me. There yeah, are yeah. plenty of people that stay in security and do really well. Right? And get it's mastery not, level in it. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah. Which, is, which is another approach. But I think just being sitting back and, and being thoughtful about what you want to do and how you want to manage your career. You know, I'm always impressed when I'm interviewing a candidate, when I can talk to them about when they move from one company to the next, like what was the logic you used to make the decision to leave? What were you looking for? Why did yeah. you go to that place? Did it turn out the way you thought? If yes, great. If not, why not? And what did you do about it? Like right. there's, a, there's a level of intention that I look for in the way people manage their careers, not just their jobs, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I want to go there next, but so I want to summarize though. If you think about the skills that you needed early stage, your product manager, your sales rep, you're a scrounger. Yeah. You're scrounging for resources. You're scrounging for everything, which is a skill. Yeah. And I think that's Absolutely. the one thing that divides a lot of people that think they want to do it versus the people that actually do it. They have to actually learn, how, like, I need to scrounge for everything that I get. Yes. And then you're, you're a recruiter. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, when did you realize how important recruiting was to your success as a leader? Well, I mean, so early days when I worked for you, frankly, you, you know, the quality of the candidates we were bringing in to a much bigger company than what I did after that. But the quality level we looked for uh, never uh, waned and was never allowed to wane. Like there was a culture. We demanded top tier talent for every single position. And, you know, sales managers would bring people that weren't quite up to snuff and 
there wasn't like, okay, we need to place the head because we need the head because we're below our hiring (laughs) levels. Like it wasn't happening. That wasn't going to happen. No, No. it wasn't going to fly. And so I learned early on, thankfully at PTC, among many other things, the value of, of sticking to your principles about what is our candidate profile? What are we looking for? And not deviating from that for anything. And so that was my kind of my first experience. But then it's a different story when you're running your own thing and you're mm-hmm. actually where the buck stops and you yes. have to be the guy that's saying no, right? That's, yes. a big, that's a big transition, right? And you're putting pressure on your managers to hire. Hey, Joe, you got to hire five reps this quarter. Well, I just sent you 10 candidates and you said no to all of them. It's like, yeah, yeah. and I'm going to keep saying no because here's what we agreed the, the candidate profile needed to have and you haven't sent me anybody with this. So right. change, you know, change your, your, your candidate pool. Well, reflect, re- recruiting becomes a reflection of that leader and their abilities to go identify and then interview and figure out who is the right candidate, right? That's a, right. It's a big reflection on the leader. And I, one of the things I found too, John, is, is the requirements for what makes a, an ideal sales candidate or even sales leadership candidate changes along the maturation journey of a yes. company. So yeah. zero, to, zero to 10 million, you need that scrounger you mentioned, right? You need someone that's really a challenger that's able to go out there and, and, and gets excited by showing the client something they may never have heard about before and is not intimidated by the fact that, hey, Mr. Customer, I know you've never heard of me before, but let me explain something to you. I have some business value that you're not going to see from anyone else. That's a certain kind of rep that can do that prospecting you know, it's, it's almost like a Navy SEAL versus somebody who's kind of, you know, in a much bigger uh, division of, of the military, right? It's, it's a much more independent operator who's comfortable operating without a lot of structure. And then as you get larger and you're at 10 to 50 million, you probably need someone that's a little bit more um, able to kind of follow a playbook that's been developed, that has best practices where you can give them the recipe and give them the playbook and say, okay, we run student body right on Mondays. We run student body left on Tuesday. We run up the middle on Wednesday. And they'll be great at executing those plays. Um, but that's very different than zero to 10, where those plays aren't well-defined yet. Right. They're almost artists at that point. And then when you're 10 to 50, it gets harder to take the artists because they're kind of bucking the system. They don't really want to that's right. Follow the prescriptive rules. So then, and, you know, they become a little bit more of a challenge. Not all the time. Some of them understand what you're trying to achieve. The really smart ones. Yeah. But, you know, or you can, put them, in, you put them into, the or you put them into a new market segment, right? You, you, yeah. you know, you use, you use their skill yes, set point. to yeah. put them into a new, Hey, we're going to break into this other financial services market. We need you to go help drive that for the next 12 months, 18 months. And, and that's a good use case. I find um, so. I find the other problem, the inverse of that, um, where people will hire either someone who's more used to a thirty or fifty million dollar motion into a five million dollar company, and they fail miserably because they don't yes. have that scrounginess and scrappiness, and they're they're frustrated by what they consider to be a lack of resource, and it's just the reality of a company at that stage. Yeah, and then I fl- used to get all my leads from marketing. Now you guys aren't giving me any leads. <laughs> right, that's exactly it. That's exactly. Hey, it. welcome to the welcome to a startup. And so, like, if the same CRO is there from from zero to hundred million, like they have to be very conscious of those 
changes in personnel requirements. And they have to be really thoughtful about taking inventory every three to six months about, okay, how does my team stack up? And where, where am I getting um, maybe some people that aren't quite a good fit for the mainstream business? Do I need to look for other places for those folks? And do we have the right folks coming in who are, who are graduating from artist to scientist, right? Because I need more scientists, right? That, that's, that's sort of an important skill set in a CRO that wants to scale that ability to step back and, and look objectively at your talent pool and figure out if you have the right people in the right roles. Well, that's the key is talk a little bit about when you know it's the right time or what, what indicators do you see when you say, mm, I think it's, we're, we're ready to, we're ready to step on the gas now instead of hiring, you know, one rep a month, let's start hiring five reps a month or more. Yeah. I think, you know, Again, one size doesn't fit all here, but you look for signs of repeatability. And, and I mentioned it earlier in the very early days, like if you're getting the head nodding at the same point in the pitch, right? That's one thing. Now, let's say you fast forward and you're at 50 customers and suddenly you start to see, okay, our average deal size is going from 180 days down to like 91 days. And I had deal size is going up. Deal size is going up. And I had five reps in their first quarter, each closed deal. Like, okay, now we're on to something here. If, it, if I can get a rep productive in less than six months, I, ha I have something. And if I can do it in hundred days, wow, I really have yeah. something. Right. Right. And so those are some, some of the indicators. I think you, you got to listen to your customers too. Like customers will tell you if you go have a dinner with a customer off campus and get them to open up about what they're seeing in the marketplace and why they bought from you and what their experience has been, you'll get a very good picture. Depending on what you're selling, a lot of times these customers, they know the market better than your sales guys do. Yeah, sure. They're, they're the ones that are trying to solve the problem that your technology yeah. is solving. So you got to listen to them and they'll tell you, hey, what you have is super unique. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've had customers say, hey, is there any way I can invest in your company? Like, this is awesome stuff, what you guys have. Yeah, right. Now talk about when you're scaling some of the things you need to put in place as a CRO to make sure that you can get people onboarded and, and highly productive quickly. Yeah, so I'm, in, I'm working on two projects right now. A lot of what I do is a coach and mentor kind of early stage CROs through this, right? Because I've been, I like to tell people I've made every mistake there is to make as a CRO. I have tons of scar tissue on my back. And if I can help you avoid one of those mistakes because I learned from mine, like, yeah. great. And so I think one of the things that, that, that there's, there's two frameworks I like to use. I think companies who have really scrappy founders and are really cash efficient and really um, miserly are the best ones from zero to 10 or 20 million. Like they, they, they don't spend a lot of cash on stuff that's not worth it. But at some point that strength becomes a huge weakness. And so I have mm -hmm. two clients right now where I'm working on, hey guys, like you have, you're well capitalized. You just raised a bunch of money before the market changed here in the last six months. So you're sitting on, you know, three years worth of runway. It's not going to do you any good in the bank. You got to go figure out where do I deploy that capital to get a return? And I'm not saying you need to be, you know, a drunken sailor, but you need to invest in things like enablement, where you hire someone that owns the sales training function. One of the things that I think people, particularly at like 20 million 
just like cresting that 10 to 20 million where you got repeatability and you're starting to build a population of reps, so many companies don't invest in enablement fast enough, early right. enough. And enablement can make a huge difference in a couple things. Number one, it'll drive your ASP up and it'll, it'll drive your you know, sales cycle down if you do it right. But more importantly, if you do it right, it opens up the candidate pool to a wider aperture where if you have a really killer enablement program where you can put someone through a 90-day process by which by day 91, they are self-sufficient and ready to get in front of customers and the customer feels like they're credible and they understand your business and they understand your technology, guess what? You can recruit sales athletes from multiple industries now and you can right. teach them your industry. Whereas if, if you don't have that, you got to kind of try to hire people from within the sector that understand what you're doing and understand the, the buying personas you're selling to. And that can be limiting. So I think you got to invest in enablement earlier. And then I think you have to invest in leadership, right? Because enablement is one thing, putting people through a class. And when they get back into their day job, that yes. sales manager they're reporting into needs to be well steeped in all of that that they learned in enablement and needs to reinforce those behaviors. And so I see too many companies try to have one sales manager manage 12 people or 15 I know, people. that's crazy. That's just, it's craziness. Or, you know, the, the kiss of death. He's a, he's a hybrid. He has a million dollar quota oh, and he's managing five that. people. <laughs> hate it. He's got his own quota and he's got a team, right? right. Doesn't Terrible. work. Doesn't I mean, if work. you have to do it to get through a quarter, fine, you know, you do it, but, but it's not, it's, it's a, it's a best a bandaid, but even then it's not great. It's amazing also that going back to enablement that more companies don't spend a dollar on it because the dollar is leveraged across so many people that there's few, you know, investments you can make where you get such leverage across so many people. Totally agree. Totally yeah. agree. So. Chris, talk a little bit about when you felt like, okay, I'm, I'm rolling a team out here in North America. We're starting to scale. When do I go to Europe? Super interesting question. And I think, again, there's no one patented answer that works for every company. Um, I think you have to be very honest about how hard that's going to be and how much it's going to cost. And so what I would suggest is don't do it too early. And too early would be if you don't have the management bandwidth and the caliber of leadership in your US market as a CRO that you can say, okay, I can go give half my cycles to helping get this startup built in London or in Amsterdam, half my cycles. That means you got to have a lot of confidence in your sales management team here in the US that right. they know what they're doing. They're going to be able to you know, secure your forecast every quarter and deliver the number while you go off and help build that other thing. If you don't have that confidence, it's too early. Yeah. Um, and I would always say that the time and cost uh, kind of estimates of starting a new business in a new market, international market, just double them. <laughs> double them both because it yeah, always takes yeah. longer. There's always something yeah. that you run into. No, to your point, it's not just an investment in dollars. It's a big investment in time. And then if you don't have the right amount of resources in your company, yes. then what happens is if those the people in Europe start to get into a deal or think they have a couple deals. Guess who's getting on an airplane and going to Europe? Your most valuable resources. And now they're right. gone for days. 
Right. Right. So if you don't have a whole bunch of people that can help carry the load, you're, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to get stretched. Yeah. And by the way, international sales is not just the sales activity. I mean, any kind of sales, right? It's a cross-functional thing, right? So to your point, it's not just the sales resources that are going to be stretched. It's development, it's marketing, it's yes. finance, it's yes. everything. And so you, you really have to be thoughtful about when the right time is to do that. And you have to be, you know, at an executive level, cross-functionally aligned in that, hey guys, this is important for the company right now at this stage. And we are going to invest the cycle. So CFO, I need X from you. CMO, I need X from you. Dev, I need Y from you, right? They need to know that this is going to be part of what we're all embarking on. How do you guys, since we're all, um, we all have international experience where we were expats. Um, I'm wondering, Chris, you, you were an expat. Um, Thanks Johnny, to John. You're an expat. Yeah, I was an expat. Um <laughs> Times, you know, how do you make those decisions about bringing resources from one continent to another continent? Um, if it's right for the individual, if it's right for the culture, like what has been your experience and has it, is it changing? Uh, is it still, um, is it still a, a good use. And I'm going to follow up on what actually happens to that expat when they, you know, when they return, because I'd love for us to talk a little bit about that, because it's not a small thing. Like, I think the numbers are shocking. It's above 70% of expats do not return, do not repatriate to the companies that sent them over there, uh, wherever they sent them from. It's, it might be higher. It I've never, you're not saying that, I've never not heard saying they don't return to, to their home country. You're saying they don't return with the company that they do them. not return with okay. the company that they that they that got means. sent. So let's break it down a little bit. Talk about how do you look at that and has it changed at all? Um, how do you look at putting resources from one, you know, from one geography into another geography and then talk just historically and maybe up to current? What's the philosophy of that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll do it bi-directionally. So first of all, I was the beneficiary of a couple of different expat experiences and it was an amazing, life-changing growth event for me. Like we can get into that after we talk about how to do it. Yeah, I will yeah. tell you that the companies I've seen go from the US to international markets, um, the ones that have done that most successfully have made the investment in dropping people in from their US business who have learned the business uh, and know how the business works. They make that investment and say, go live over there for 18 months or 24 months and help teach the people we're going to hire on the ground how this business works. That's the best way to do it. And I would say if you try to do it without that, it winds up being more costly because you wind up parachuting people in. It's episodic. It, there's not as enough, enough sustainability to kind of what you're trying to do essentially is basically transplant a culture, right? You're not just trying to get revenue generated in a new market. You're trying to build, you want that culture that you've built that's made you successful here in the US. You want that culture to translate to Europe or to Asia. And in order to do that, it's not just about bringing the product and the idea. You actually have to bring some people that, that are part of that culture and get that sort of graft of the DNA entrenched in, in that other market. 
And they don't have to be there forever, but they should be there for part of the time. I've also seen, by the way, the other way, where we've invested in companies that started in Asia and then came to the US. Yeah. And it's yeah. just as important that way. You know, it, it makes it makes sense. It stands to reason. But I encourage those companies to have a founder or someone at a senior level come to the US to help open up US operations. There's so many, so many uh, conversations we could have about culture because it's such a um, important uh, aspect of 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 you know moving people around the globe and I've seen people that do it really really well and I've seen people that do it uh, companies that have done it just atrociously for example you know there's probably a lot of people listening to this podcast right now you know that have experienced the back end of it you know bringing American culture or U.S. culture into you know Europe or into Asia uh, and that needs to be broken down in, right. you know it's not it's not trying to transplant you know one culture to another culture it's about how can we help other cultures be successful in their cultures i got some advice you know when i went to europe um and i learned it the hard way you're talking about 18 to 24 months i was actually there for five years so i think it there's a there's a lot of story behind that it took me five years to figure it out probably somebody once told me um be the same before you're different so learn how to be the same before you're different and how i internalized that really kind of matured over time you know it wasn't you know be the same, you know, based upon performance or anything like that. It was like, you know, try to ingratiate yourself into a culture to understand the culture first and then figure out how you can bring aspects of what you're doing in the United States or what you're doing in Asia or what have you. But it's, I think most companies suck at it. They don't, they don't train people how to do it. They don't. And the leaders that go over, they think I'm a great person. I'm successful. I'm top in my company. People are just going to love, you know, what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. It's actually really, really complex. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And, and, you know, there's two cultures you're dealing with when you internationalize a company, you're dealing with the company culture yeah, and you're dealing with the culture in the market that you're entering. Right. And there's an established culture. You know, I, I had yeah, to go to yeah. Japan and, and figure out how to, kind of adopt our company culture for that culture, which is a beautiful, rich culture with a lot of history, but yeah, it's yeah. very different than the U S. And so how yeah. do you kind of think about melding those two together? It's, 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 it's hard. Hey, Chris, let's talk a little bit about um, the repatriation piece. When people, when they're thinking about, actually it's the whole thing. When you're thinking about taking an assignment, it's not only the cultural things of coming into and making sure you get off to a really great start and doing a good job in your assignment. It's the, it's the thought of when you take an assignment, making sure that you stay connected to the company, to the, you know, to the corporate office, if you will, and to make sure that you don't wind up on an island, as I think we were talking about. It's actually the number one reason why people do not repatriate back with the company uh, that sent them there is because something changed politically inside the company, their champion, whoever sent them or whatever sponsored them, something has changed. What advice do you give people on how to stay connected and focused on coming back? 
Yeah. So a couple things I would say, if you're at the right stage in your career and your personal life, I would urge people to seek out international opportunities mm-hmm. first and foremost. I think it's a not only professionally enriching, but life enriching. I think it changes your perspective on so many things and, yes. and kind of makes you just a, makes you in some ways a, a more, um, I don't know, worldly is kind of a hackneyed phrase, but you just, your eyes open up to things being well different rounded. And, and to that being okay. Like it's okay. And, and so it, yeah. and for me, like I, you know, when I first got to Japan, I, I, I never really spoke much Japanese because partway through my time there, I was handling 13 markets. And so I was living in Japan, but I was on a plane all over Asia. And so actually my wife learned a lot more Japanese than I ever did. Um, but I learned how to understand through watching body language and observing the way people were answering the question, even though I didn't understand the language, I can't tell you how many times by the third year I was in Japan, my translator would start to tell me what the person said. I'm like, no, I know. I already know. She's like, well, how do you know? You don't speak the language. I'm like, I, I got it. Like, let's keep going. Cause you yeah. can just, you can intuit it. You, you get, it's like, you know, this is, this is probably maybe not such a politically correct way to think about it, but you know, you hear about people who have, um, visual impairments, developing super keen senses of hearing. Um, I felt the same way when I was in Japan, like I, I couldn't understand the language. So I get, I paid attention to to everything. And now I read body language really well. And so I think that's a skill that I've taken back. So that's one thing, but it's broader than that. I think being in an international environment where you're not comfortable forces you to be at the top of your game. It just makes you better. Um, and so that's, one form of encouragement, if there's a young listener out there who's contemplating taking an international assignment, do it. Jump in yeah. and go for it. And then in terms of staying connected, it's a valid point. Like I was lucky when I went overseas the first um, four years of my kind of four, almost five years of my international experience, I was at PTC and we had a really tight culture. And so I was able to stay in touch with you and John and other yep. guys in the company and a lot of them were also moving around and doing international things. So we were able to kind of stay connected, but. I think we called it commiserating. At yeah, back that's, right. that's exactly <laughs> what we called it. God, that McMahon made me move to Japan. Can you believe yeah. that? Yeah. Um, well, that's think, after your really long stint in Singapore. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> One week. I didn't even yeah. get there. Um, but, you know, I think, making sure you treat those relationships you have with the folks that are back at the corporate country, you know, treat them as important and stay in touch with people, reach out, you know, don't, don't let them lose sight of you and don't lose sight of them. Stay in touch. Um, I think that's important. And look, certainly today versus when I was over there in, in the late nineties, like things are much more connected globally. No doubt. So the ability to do that is important. And I think if, if I'm now, when I look at resumes for leaders that are coming into our portfolio, you know, I'm always much more attracted to someone that's had two or three years of international experience. Cause I know mm-hmm. that that person is going to innately understand differences in culture and selling styles and customer behaviors in ways that someone that's only ever operated in the UK or only ever operated in the U S might. And so to me, that's an advantage in hiring. I look for people that have that international experience for sure. Right. And Chris, when you think about your career and you think about 
if I'm a sales leader at any level, tell me two or three lessons you'd share with me. Wow. That's, that's a, that's a big question. You know, I think that the topic we talked about earlier, you know, hiring great leadership is probably the single most important difference maker between success and failure. Yes. If you are a sales leader that knows how to hire great leadership underneath you, your ability to scale that organization is amplified. Your ability to get into other markets is amplified. Your ability to, you know, grow the company is amplified. And so like focusing on hiring great leadership as a core competency would be the thing I would tell people, young leaders. And why you got to hire people so better teams, than you. So many leaders at any level, even first line managers and second and third, so many of them just don't take the time and don't put the effort in to trying to recruit the best people. Why is that? You see it all the time. Yeah, I think A, because it's hard, John. Like, yeah, it's hard. You know, people say, why don't more people run marathons? Because well, it's really hard to train for a marathon. <laughs> it's hard work. Uh, so, so I think it's similar. It, 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 recruiting takes an enormous amount of time, particularly for, you know, a sales leader trying to hire other sales leaders. It's hard. I also think there's an ego thing at play here, right? Like, I think a lot of more junior executives, they get intimidated by hiring people that are maybe mm-hmm. more experienced in certain areas than they are or smarter on certain topics than they might be. I love that. Give me the smartest people I can get. And I, yes. I want them to be smarter than me. Yes. You can't be intimidated by that. If you want to be successful, you need to build a team of people that round you out and make you better. And so to the degree you can hire people that have towering strengths in certain areas that maybe you don't, that's a good thing. And you shouldn't yes. allow your ego to intimidate you away from, from making that hire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Cap. We were already yeah, like brother. almost an hour in. This has felt like five <laughs> minutes. Fast. Was there anything else? I just want him to finish his thoughts on that in the leadership advice. Yeah. So you, you talked Was about any... recruiting. Give yeah. us one, give us one more that you'd say, looking back on leadership career, I, what else I, is super important? I would say fail fast. Like yeah. there's been tons of times where I've made mistakes, either hiring the wrong person or kind of putting a structure in place that didn't work. Um, if you can see that things are not working, the, sometimes the best thing to do is, you know, start again, you know, recognize it, admit your mistake, move on and fix it. There's been many times in my career where I've, I've ridden the wrong horse for way too long. And it doesn't help anybody. And I'm not just talking about people. I'm talking about constructs, business um, structures that you might build. You know, you try to verticalize something. You can see it's not working. You know, you you need to fix things. Don't let your ego get in the way is what I always say. If you make a mistake, just, okay, change it quick. Correct. Don't let your ego get in the way. Don't hang on. And the last thing I would tell you is I see this more and more, and I, I, I don't know if this is just me getting older and less patient or it's, it's, a, a, it's kind of a change in the community, but people don't move fast enough. Like air toward action. And you look perfect example this week, I'm dealing with one of my clients and there's a really good candidate for a very important executive position. 
And it took them two weeks to contact the person. I'm like, guys, that's not enough. How many other people have called them in the last two weeks? He's already got another job. Yeah. We got to be on that. Like, and for small companies, I deal with companies that are typically almost all under 50 million and, and, and many under, under 30 million. Like you got to be able to move fast. You got to be able to move quickly. So air toward um, action and inaction is the killer. You got to be moving forward all the time. It's you not can't the, move uh, fast when you're 30 million or 50 million. You're, you're yeah. never going to move you're fast. <laughs> it's only going to get more difficult. You're right. It's not the, it's not the, big that eat the small it's the quick that eat the slow that's yeah. in, in today's market that's well said john yes let me do a recap um to we we uh, man so many uh so many great uh comments here and nuggets we started talking about raw startups and and really chris that's why we wanted to have you on your just your experience of you know going through those different maturity models has 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 just given you great experience you talked about really the importance of you know in in a raw startup mode being honest with yourself and knowing that you know icp ideal customer profiles you're really wearing a couple of hats of product manager and sales professional you got to learn how to prioritize. You got to prioritize things from a sales perspective. You have to prioritize things from a product perspective. You talked about the need for really communicating in all aspects, internal in the company, with board members, with customers. These are that's a real high skill set. And being able to pattern recognize, you use that a couple of different ways signals from the marketplace but also pattern pattern recognize success successes and pattern recognize failures is what we just talked about is failing fast uh, and then finding acute pain which will really help you find the urgency and the urgency finds the money and the money finds the power and influence and i thought that was just really really good advice that you gave you talked about what i characterized as surviving past the founder company needs the ability to survive past the founder and helping founders understand that breaking down their vision into bite-sized chunks of value which solve problems and can be repeatable is the best place to start for scalability and then you just talked about kind of the different stages you talked about, you know, for people to think about. And I, you know, I haven't really heard it said that way. It makes total sense. But I liked how you said it. You go early and the equity is greater. Um, but there's a lot of trade-offs to that. Um, you need to attach yourself at the hip with the founder and learn not only the technical side of the business, but also at the same time, you're building trust with the founder. I loved your point, and I want people to really listen to this level of intention in career progression. I think the way people move around today, no problem. I understand they're going to move differently than I moved 20 years ago, but level of intention and purpose in career progression, that's Egypt old. It's going to be, they'll be talking about that after, after we're gone. And I think it's just really, really good advice. You then talked about recruiting and recruiting uh, is a reflection of the leaders, what Johnny said. And <clears throat> you talked about zero to 10 being, you know, we're looking for people that can handle the scrounge, scrounging. 
and they're independent operators. I like the way that you put that. And they tend to be more artistic. And then 10 to 50 was more about executing a playbook <clears throat> and more of the science aspect of it and being really, really honest with yourself. If you're a listener, really honest with yourself about it's not a badge of courage or a badge of honor where you fall in these categories. What do you like to do? What gives you energy when you're hiring for this stuff also? You got to make sure you're putting people in the right roles. We moved on to the topic of scaling and you talked about timing and you talked about looking for those, you know, nuggets of repeatability and pattern recognition around average sales cycle, average deal sizes. <clears throat> those are areas of opportunity to really give you some indicators that, you know, uh, it's time to scale. Talked about the importance of enablement. And really at, you know, it opened, I love what you said here, and I think it's so true, is that, you know, companies really become known by their ability to scale people quickly. And people want to go to organizations that have the ability to, you know, create a playbook, to execute against the playbook, and you start to open up what you call the candidate aperture or the candidate pool. I thought that was really good. And you talked about recruiting sales athletes. Um, and then you talked about investing in leadership from a scaling perspective and the span of control issues of making sure you keep an eye on that. And companies really, I think, get that wrong is they do it too late, is they wait for problems to occur when somebody has, you know, one leader to 15 individuals or what have you. And, you know, you start to get into a you start to get into a real problem there. We moved on to a conversation of international, which I really enjoyed because we all have experience with that. Um, careful not to do it too early and really stay focused on leadership bandwidth. It's not just the cost. Uh, it's the time. And you said time and the cost estimates, just double them if you're going international. Whatever you think it is, it's probably going to be double that. Yep. You talked about considering the resource drain and all the resources, not just sales leadership. You talked about development. You talked about product development, enablement, uh, finance. Uh, it's 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 a total um, it's a total viewpoint there. <clears throat> we then had a conversation about um, expats and some advice on you know, how to do that and, you know, how to make sure you get a great outcome while you're there and how to get a great outcome while you're back. Johnny had us follow up in the end here with the sales leadership advice, hiring great leadership underneath you is a core competency. Don't try to be the smartest person in the room. Surround yourself with people that um, compliment you and compliment the team. Recruiting great talent, it's never going to get old. It comes up on every podcast that we do. Your advice around failing fast, and the reason why people don't fail fast is probably mostly because of ego. Um, but fail fast and fail early is, is something I think is, a, is, is good advice. Error towards action. I'm going to wind it up here. It's one of my favorite things that you said today. It's urgency. It is creating a culture, creating a mentality of urgency, error towards action. I really love that. Johnny, what I miss? That's a pretty decent summary. Good Mr. recap. You did a really good job. The thing Thanks, that brother. I'd like to throw in there that I think you did not say is, you know, all of us having international experience and 
as Chris pointed out, it's more than just gaining business experience overseas. It's that it also builds character for you as a person and ha- you have a different view of the world than you had before you left. And I, th- and I thought it had a powerful effect on me. And I think it had for you. Also. And our families, like, yes. you know, my two kids, my two kids went back to Germany to go to school and college. Uh, and they're fluent, you know, two of the three are fluent in German. And, uh, you know, it, it was way bigger. The experience was way bigger than the business experience which was just invaluable the personal experience for the family it was was yeah. fantastic i wound yeah, up I marrying think... a dutch girl so yeah, I took... buddy. <laughs> and had a daughter over there so i took more than just two wooden shoes back to to the u.s you know <laughs> practicing practicing your craft in in an environment that's not comfortable yeah makes you that much better right and then and then just being being a human in an environment that's not comfortable, you know, yeah. you, you got to stretch yourself. And, yeah. and that experience, I think, broadens us as people. Yeah. I think that's such a Johnny, how many times has it come up in the last few podcasts being comfortable, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Uh, I didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice in my international yeah. assignment. I was uncomfortable day one. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it was just a really, really great experience. So thank God for fear of failure. No right? doubt. Good thing. No sometimes. doubt. As long as you're not thrashing. <laughs> Give us some rapid fire, Johnny. Rapid fire, Chris. You ready? Yeah. Okay. What's your ideal day off of work? Well, I think you probably know this. Um, there's, yeah. a, there's a poster behind me of my favorite golf course in the world, but it's either playing golf or I also do enjoy watching my kids do anything that they love, either sports or my daughter's a singer. So any of that stuff is a lot of fun. And uh, as your kids start to get older, you realize that stuff is temporal, right? So you want yeah. to enjoy it while you can. You're but like a zero that. handicap now, right? Oh, I wish. Because I need about 22 strokes from you on December 16th. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. John, John will attest to the fact that I am no zero handicap. But yeah. okay, we have fun. Just, set, just setting the tone. Okay. Well, we'll have to stay on golf for one second. Favorite club in the bag. My favorite club in the bag is probably my seven iron. Seven. The yeah. one I tend to hit more consistently. Nice. Favorite meal? Oh, God. Unfortunately for me, it's just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> I probably, if I had to have one last meal, I'd say it's Italian. Like, I, I love Italian food. Yeah. You know, it's uh, probably my favorite cuisine. How about your favorite movie? The Godfather 2. Not one. Two. Part yes. two. Yes. Agree. Two is better than one, I thought. Yes. But not by a lot, but by enough. De Niro was amazing in that. Oh, what a cast. Yeah. Great film. And how about best concert you ever been to? Uh, well, I, that's a hard one. I saw when I was living in Japan, I saw dueling pianos, Elton John and Billy Joel together. Wow. And they put two grand pianos face to face. So they each played an hour. And then at the last hour, they put the two pianos face to face and played together. That was pretty awesome. Interesting. That was pretty awesome. It is. Do you have a favorite charity or something or a charity you want to talk about? I do actually. So um, I've been doing a lot of work with a, an organization called E for All, um, Entrepreneurship for All. And it's um, 
they're operating in a bunch of different markets now, but they started here in Boston, actually in Lowell. They were founded by a guy by the name of Desh, the pet Desh Pandey, who you might know. He was an entrepreneur yeah, in Boston. So yes. Desh started it. And the idea is if we can go into underserved communities and help entrepreneurs get companies started, we can do a lot to help those communities because those businesses will not only help the founder who's creating the business, but hopefully the whole community because they'll hire people, they'll bring revenue into the community. And so um, this organization has a mentorship program, which I've participated in now for two cycles. I'm about to start my third, where they match people like the three of us who have had business success and experience. They'll put us with a team of two other mentors and a founder in one of these communities who's trying to start a business. And the business wow. could be a tech business. It could be a restaurant. It could be a hair salon. It could be anything, any kind of business that they're trying to get started. And it's a six month program. And you spend time helping the, the entrepreneur think through their business idea, get it started, think through their business plan and their model. And it's been really uh, rewarding for me. And uh, I think it's a tremendous program. So I would highly encourage Do they have people. it? Is it just in... Is it just in mass or is it, is it around the country? No, they're starting to expand around the country. They're, um, awesome. they're operating in Buffalo, New York, I believe now. Um, they're, they're opening up other avenues all over. But they've got, I think, three or four chapters around the Boston area, which is Fantastic. where I can work from. Hey, Chris. We'll put, we'll put that in them. the show notes. Yeah, we have to put that in the show Yeah, they're in Colorado. They're in Arkansas. They're in Rhode Island. They're in New York. So Awesome. Yeah. E for all. Yeah. We'll put e that in e4all.org. Awesome. Yep. Chris. Yes. Thanks a ton, buddy. Very yeah, this grateful. was a lot of fun. That you did this. It went really fast. A lot of really good information in there for a lot of people. Thank yeah. you so much. Really appreciate it. Happy to help. It was good fun. Talk soon. All right. Yeah, thanks, Chris, guys. I uh I uh just very, very grateful for you sharing your expertise, but I just want to commend you. I, you know, my team has worked with you a number of different times and my daughter has, you know, my family members, if you could think of that back in the day of PTC back in Massachusetts. And then we, one of my daughters would work with, uh, with you and, She's and a your sharp companies. Cookie. Yeah. Thanks brother. Thanks buddy. But just your, your impact that continues with your experience and, and then taking the time to, you know, share that with our listeners. I think this is just going to, it's going to be a great, great episode for our troops. So thank well, you very much, brother. Hey, thank you both for doing this because I think, you know, this is a terrific resource for young sales professionals that are trying to find their way in a career and a craft that the three of us love. Like you guys are really giving back. And I think the community is, is benefiting from this kind of stuff. So thanks for doing it. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you, brother. Really, really appreciate you. And thank you to all of you for listening to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 